Today, I'm sitting down with an entrepreneur with a passion for great design and interiors, who, along with her two co-founders, has created a business dedicated to the resale of mid-century design and the best contemporary furniture. The trio behind Rehouse had found the process of looking for good quality vintage and designer furniture laborious, with constant issues surrounding communication, authenticity, quality and speed. And so began Rehouse, the online platform dedicated to selling unique vintage pieces and iconic designer furniture in great condition and available for immediate delivery. Daphne Vasiliadis is here today to tell us about the beginning of the journey and what it's meant to have two other serial entrepreneurs alongside her in Shuttle founder Tom Allison and econ veteran Will Cochrane. As well as her take on the principles behind the best managed marketplaces, Daphne will talk to us too about bringing greater intentionality into the home and design choices that people make. And we'll find out more about how Rehouse is so successfully cornering this particular market. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. Well, it's a real pleasure, a great privilege to welcome you to the show, Daphne Vasiliadis. So welcome to The Entrepreneurs. Daphne, tell us, first of all, what's Rehouse? What's it all about? Rehouse is a managed marketplace that buys and sells pre-owned designer and vintage furniture. And by that, I mean mid-century onwards. So we are basically transforming the experience of buying and selling designer furniture by making it incredibly easy for people to sell because we go and collect from people's houses and incredibly easy for people to buy because we're offering really strong listings. We shoot everything ourselves. So the visuals are very strong and the listings are very detailed. So you've got sort of assurance on condition and we offer next day free delivery. So we're kind of revolutionizing the process of buying and selling big items and making it very easy for people to realize value of what's in their home. Now, I was really intrigued, Daphne, sort of reading about the start of the business and what informed you and your your co-founders to to, to take the leap. Was this sense of frustration, and I guess some of this speaks to the objectives that you've set out in your sort of ambitions there. What were some of those experiences? I know that you had all become frustrated with a lack of authenticity, a lack of quality, speed, Mm. very important, but also uh, not a lack, but an an issue with the quality, I guess, of the communications in a business. And obviously, if you're talking about design and design products. These are deeply personal things and those things matter. But tell us a bit about the kinds of issues that you guys had run into Mm -hmm. and how that prompted the conversation to get started. So because we all have backgrounds in in corporate businesses, but also in startups, and one of my co-founders is a serial marketplace entrepreneur, this is my third startup. We all kind of looking for opportunities. So I think it was a combination of understanding and realizing certain things that I will tell you about in a second and also the frustration. So the one hand, you've got the commercial opportunity and challenge that you identify. And then on the other hand, you have the frustrations that you experience personally. And I think it was the combination of those two factors so on the one hand my business partner Tom sold his last business to eBay and went to work for eBay as a senior executive and one of the things that he found out while he was there was that the top performing sellers across all categories at eBay are the sellers of refurbished goods apart from furniture and the reason for that is because furniture on eBay is dominated by consumers consumer sellers and consumer sellers can't deliver 
they can't write good listings and they can't photograph furniture well. So it's a hugely underrepresented category and therefore an opportunity potentially. And he and I are very old friends and I've always wanted to get into interiors and furniture because it's always been kind of my side passion. I've always bought stuff that I found that I would like upcycle or reupholster or whatever and then I would sell it myself on eBay. I could always see that there are huge margins to be made. And then at the same time, he and I are both buying things online and realizing those frustrations, which are it typically you don't really know who you're buying from. Some people are very strange <laughs> who sell this kind of thing or you never hear back or you do. And then they're just I don't know, there's there's kind of a fraught communication. Whether you're buying direct or whether you're buying through marketplaces, you're never sure. And, and sometimes you're talking through the marketplace. So that takes a really long time or you don't get a reply. So the comms is, is difficult. Visually, the representation is is you're not necessarily seeing what you see when it arrives in your house, especially to do with condition and damage and that kind of mm. thing. And then, of course, delivery is very, very difficult. So in some cases, you're expected to collect it yourself. So unless, I mean, if you're someone like me, then it's different because I do this because I love doing it and I was doing it before anyway. But I think 99.9% of the population do not have a delivery company in their back pocket. So even if you're buying direct or from a marketplace, again, the shipping can be fraught with difficulty and it takes a really, really long time. And actually it takes a long time for furniture in general. So whether mm. you're buying from IKEA made, you know, B&B Italia, it doesn't matter who you're buying through, a vintage tradesperson or a marketplace, it'll take typically, I'd say at best, two to four weeks. And most often it's more like two to three months. So, um, you know, if you want something in two days, that's impossible. So I think the combination of the opportunity identified through getting some data, if you like, and then all of the frustrations and knowing the margins with designer furniture as well. So being commercial, I think those were the the things that led us, I suppose, to, to trial Rehouse. So Tom has a bunch of properties and he started just buying stuff just to see and then I set up a little photo studio in a warehouse and started taking pretty pictures because I also do photography as a hobby, made some really pretty listings, got us onto the big marketplaces and eBay, and we started selling this stuff at crazy margins. So um, that's kind of how the idea was born. And then we met our third co-founder who has a background in e-com ops, and we joined forces, and then we launched our own platform. So collaboration clearly very important because it yeah. strikes me... I like the fact that you've managed to draw in these other passion plays that you have for photography, for yeah. design and kind of collecting these items and then turn that into a business. And that you can understand because it's like, wow, I can actually do this and I can make it into a successful business. The involvement of Will, I think, is interesting because I guess there are fewer people maybe who find logistics as sexy as photography or as furniture. I mean, very much everyone has their own not agenda, I think we all have the same agenda, but everyone comes into it with a different specialism and, and a different kind of passion and a different offering. And I think that's what makes it so good. But do you think that, because you mentioned you've started up a few businesses, yeah. is there a bit of serendipity in terms of getting all of those people that cover off all those parts? Or do you think that by the second, third time of asking, you kind of, you know who you need? Or is there always a little bit of luck in I think sense? I think both. Tom knew that I really wanted to do something in this space. And as I said, he's a serial entrepreneur and I'm becoming a serial entrepreneur. So 
yes, serendipity to an extent, because it's kind of the right time, the right place. But also once you've done it a few times, you know what you need, like you said, to put a team together. Now, one thing that also strikes me as quite interesting is the confluence of all these different things. Obviously, this made sense, as you said, for yourself and your co-founders. This broader story about changing the life cycle of things and the sort of sustainability agenda. I mean, it's gone, it was around and it Mm. was important and it is important for everybody and every product we we buy and consume. But the kind of narrative has shifted, you know, it's gone into overdrive, hasn't it, Mm. in the last kind of few years. Again, was that something that also informed your, your strategy or your thinking or was that just a happy thing that has happened alongside the emergence of Rehouse? No, I'd say that was always a big, big part of it. One of the things that, you know, is going to be a core part of how we develop is our second life guarantee. So if you buy from us at the moment, we guarantee that if you're ever tired of the item or you're moving house or you want to replace it with something else, we'll come and collect it from you and we'll put it back and sell it on Rehouse. So the way I see it developing is a bit like you would have your art collection in an auction house you'll be able to track the value in the same way we will have, you know, a Rehouse app where you'll be able to see at any given point all the items that you've bought from us, they'll be in your portfolio and you'll be able to see the value of those items. And so if you want to sell it, you can put it back on effectively. So making it really, really easy for people to not even think about waste or anything like that. And you're basically constantly recycling. So you just put it back on and you'll take something else from our platform so really encouraging this cyclical thing that that you're talking about Mm. another thing we do again kind of adding to the recycle element is if you're buying from us now and you want to sell something but it's not necessarily designer it's just old and it maybe it has no value we'll still come and take it off your hands and we'll recycle it in an environmentally friendly way and if it's like an intermediary value we have our sort of ebay outlet where we can sell it there so really trying to encourage people not to throw things away, but also to recycle them and to, you know, I suppose swap is probably the wrong word, but to really change the mindset. Um, mm. So that I think that's one element, which is is, is core, because we really want customers who are going to become long-term loyal customers. And that's why I give the art sort of similarity, because I think you become someone who will look after and you just buy everything from us and we'll look after your things. And then when you're done and you want to sell them, we'll come and take them and value them and sell them a custodian you're a custodian custodian. well it's funny because people have long had that conversation actually about art and said you know art as asset class and there are people who are a bit dubious about that for obvious reasons and they say look you've got to like it it's on your wall and you shouldn't treat it like that but there are some good aspects to viewing art in that way do you think that you can change people's sort of intentionality about why they are buying beautiful objects or things that are right for them. Yeah, so that was the other thing I was going to get to. So I think there's a huge opportunity for us to kind of widen the net in terms of making designer furniture more accessible and changing the way people view buying designer furniture. Because when you buy something from Ikea or high street furniture, it depreciates by about 95% over the course of you know, five-year period, and it loses most of its value overnight. When you buy designer furniture, it depreciates by about 50%, and that happens straight away, but then it stops depreciating, which is when we take it on. So if you buy it from us, it's not going to depreciate anymore, and in some cases, it will appreciate, right? So the value proposition, if you look at it over a five-year period, it's actually cheaper to buy a piece of designer furniture from us than it is to buy 
something from Ikea. And obviously there's a re-education to be had when it comes to that. But if you can nail that, you can really make design and furniture much more accessible. And by introducing things like Klarna, where people can pay over time, I think you're completely revolutionizing the way people think of of what they're buying and buying quality and buying for the long term. And when people are so interested in sustainability at the moment, which they are, and it is a big thing, but not everybody understands it or can see how they can do it. I think to be able to explain that and offer it as an option will help us not only attract people who already buy designer or people who buy sustainably, but people who don't, but would like to in theory. And that's really interesting because how do you then help to provide that education and awareness? Because I guess to a degree, it just comes with being of a certain scale when you can reach a a broader audience. But I guess, especially at the beginning, there's a, a necessity to try and I don't know if it educates the right word. It's an awareness, an awareness play. What does that look like? Is it just about, as you say, photographing things beautifully, having confidence in the story, the power of that narrative, and to complement it with some simple facts that's expedient? Yeah. You'll actually save money in the longer term. How, how do you do all of those things to ensure that that wider learning happens? I think that's friends. what you can do with skill and money, if I'm honest. You know, that takes a little bit more time. We're obviously very early days, but that is the ambition. And that's something that with money you can do with all of the things that you mentioned, but strong marketing campaigns, talks, workshops, partnerships, sponsorships, etc. Hopefully coming to chat with yes, friends, exactly. like, friends like Monocle. Well, I'm really interested to, to what degree, as you start to think about that longer term picture and yeah. that growth model, growth strategy, how much do you have to, to some extent, shut out your previous experience of growing other businesses? For all of you, as you said, mm. you're all serially successful. And how much do you have to try and refocus and just look at Rehouse and its specific challenges? I mean, I guess the whole point of being an experienced business person is that you have that wealth of knowledge that you're constantly tapping. But how do you best plot those moves when it comes to you know, the strategy for growth over, I don't know, the medium term? I mean, I don't think you should. I think you should use your experience. That's the whole point, surely. I would never not use the experience I had. But I think it's about being selective, I suppose, to an extent. But I think, you know, it's interesting. I was having this discussion with my husband last night in view of this interview. You know, they say you should fail fast and quickly. I think if you don't fail fast, then you just fail. But then you learn, but you learn longer term. And Mm. then you can't apply those lessons in that business. But I think if you're starting a new business, then certainly you take all of your learnings and you apply them to that business. And of course, every business is unique and has different challenges. But I think that's kind of what makes us who we are. And, and, you know, you pour all of that knowledge and experience into your next business to make it better. And you don't make the same mistakes. Well, I was going to ask you about that because there are these sorts of truisms or these sort of glib phrases people use in business. And that is one, isn't it? That you learn more when things go wrong. Is it? I mean, they are. They are. They. They're useful, right? I was told probably by Tom in my last business, fell fast and quickly. And I think I only realised sort of later that actually you need to fill as fast as you can so you can apply those learnings in time because if you know if you don't then as I said you probably apply them to your next business but in terms of other things I think it's more you end up hearing things and then you remember those things or the things that impacted you the most I remember once someone said to me when you have a startup the lows are really low but the highs are really high and you really have to ride those highs to get you through the lows and that stuck with me because it's true as well and then I'd also say it's very very hard work 
So prepared to be committed and, and like you can't give up. You've got to be in it for the long run and it's not easy. I know a lot of people who say, oh, I want I want to start my own company. And that's how I was because I think they see other friends doing it or it just sounds fun or they just want to work for themselves. And I just say like it's fun, but it's a lot of work. It's a lot more work than any other job. And is that, is that because I think people think, oh, yes, people have said I'm entrepreneurial yeah. or I've got a bit of spark and moxie about me. But that you do need that. But then you also have to ally that with incredible application. Right? And there's a lot of sacrifice. And another thing, and this is more of a personal thing that I've noticed, is that in order to be an entrepreneur, and this is based on the experience I've had and the people I've met along the way, and you meet a lot of people that are entrepreneurs when you're an entrepreneur yourself and it becomes kind of your circle and that's you end up meeting people all the time, is that if you don't have, this is one of the saddest things, I think, but if you don't have someone providing you financial support while you're doing it, it's very very hard and that's unfair but mm. it, it's just how it is now tell me a little bit more about rehouse if people i mean hopefully people will head to the site and they'll check it out and they'll read more and learn more and hopefully join that the community which is all very exciting what's the sort of process it's not how is it kind of curated maybe mention some of the brands mm -hmm. that you work with most often there's some very storied names and yeah. designs some more kind of niche ones which is more for the sort of connoisseurs is it important to you to have that mix are there particular brands that just because you're a fan you yeah. enjoy working with her sure. with most tell us a bit about that so I think, again, what's I have to say this before I answer your question in a way. The fact that we're a managed marketplace means that we hold the stock. So we collect it from you. If you're selling it through us, we clean it. So everything's professionally cleaned. We restore it, photograph it, package it. So it's ready to go next day. And what that means is that you can't sell that item anywhere else. So we're not worried that you're going to sell it through eBay or another one of the big luxury marketplaces because you can't. So as a result of that, we don't need that, I suppose, depth of skew because we hold the stock. So in terms of the I suppose, variety of brands, at the moment, we're trying to be commercial. And what that means is selling things that we know people are buying. Of course, we don't take things that are incredibly damaged. We tend to only sell things that are in very, very good condition or nearly new and if they're not we'll do minor restoration sometimes reupholstery but we are on the contemporary side selling to popular brands like B&B Italia, Minotti, Cassina, all the big brand names that you would know and then we also do look at vintage things that are driven kind of more by design merit because they're really beautiful pieces or again because they're very popular. We're very data driven so we know what sells and what people are looking for whether it's a model or a color or a fabric and that will drive our decisions but of course we're very aesthetically driven business as well well i so, wanted to ask you yeah. about that because obviously for someone who is a a sort of collector if you like yeah. or an enthusiast someone who's passionate about designs do you think of i don't know specific designers and then try to find data points that ensure you can take no, those kinds of uh, no, pieces is, no, it, is, that, is you, that ever in I conflict think you'd be, no because then you'd be for forcing the algorithm, as it were. Um, and I gather you have to be very careful about that, right? Yeah, I mean, that's not the, <laughs> that's not the point, really. You know, pe people are buying beautiful things, to mm. be honest. We don't need to reverse engineer good product. But also we're getting 
the point is there's nowhere at the moment that does what we do. And if you want to sell like a good quality, expensive piece of furniture that you care about, that you've been looking after all these years, there is nowhere to sell it, right? You're not going to take it to an auction house because you've got to get it there. And then if it doesn't sell, you've got to get it back. And if it does sell, you're, you're going to get nothing for it. So, you know, where else are you going to go? And even though we're very small, we have so many inquiries every day of people sending us things. So, you know, there's this plethora of amazing product and a lot of it is contemporary and a lot of it is vintage, but there's so much great product to choose from. I don't feel like we need to stack the deck in, stack in, the in, data, in no. Um, and then what about managed marketplaces? Because as you said, there are clearly opportunities yeah. and canny entrepreneurs are, are still seizing them, but, you know, it's dominated by a few gigantic players and so I guess it's harder to be competitive maybe but between yourself and your other colleagues obviously what wealth of experience in this specific sector and it's growing all the time are you discovering kind of new not data points so much mm. as principles if you like mm-hmm. of yes, these I kind love, of managed marketplaces yeah. that you think might have a broader application even that's not where I thought you were going with this question actually I thought you were going to say you're discovering just more interesting like things which I was going to say yes, and I love that. Well, no, that we'll part. expand on exactly that. I'll expand on that, and I'll then, I'll then go back. <laughs> I, just, I, I love because you know we talk to people as well, right? And it's it's just fascinating and, and interesting to see what people's frustrations are, and also to be proven right. And I think being able to kind of just make it really easy for people mm. is something that people really appreciate, because people tend to really look after designer furniture possibly more so than non-designer furniture. People really care about their things, you know, and they want to make sure that they're being looked after and they're going to a good home. And so the fact that we kind of have this service where we'll go, we'll collect it from you, we'll make it look really beautiful. We're really like doing it like a service, you know, and elevating it and, and then selling it for a lot of money. I think it's nice to see that there is a real yearning and desire from people for the things to be looked after. It's nice that we can facilitate that. And it's funny, so many of those principles are things that you might traditionally have associated with bricks and mortar outlets. It's very human. Uh, People get to talk to you. You get to spend time. And it's potentially easier to communicate those values face to face. Maybe, again, a little further down the road, we'll say, but, you know, what about a physical showroom or what about pop-ups? Oh, my God, I'm dying to do all of that. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. We have a really fun idea of something we want to do that's really big that will allow us to kind of touch on bricks and mortar and do something really interesting. And I think my background is also retail and fashion, and I think that's so important to do something. And that will certainly form kind of a key part of our, I suppose, experiential strategy further down the line, but not at the beginning. That is not what drives the business, but I think uh, we can be really creative, uh, mm. especially working in collaboration and partnership with you know interior designers and and brands. What's well, exciting? It feels a bit like a sort of a half exclusive or something that might happen around the corner. You but- know, you know what springs to mind. Uh, maybe this isn't a great analogy, but it does pop into my head. You know, for Fetch bought Brown's fashion, and they're doing all sorts of very interesting mm. things with retail. Of course, they're a retail brand, and we're an e-com marketplace but I think there are things you can do to be creative to connect the two and I think those things can strengthen not only brand awareness but the way you know people can experience a business that they will continue to experience online but it's a it's a good connector. Now one of the things that's kind of run through everything in our conversation Daphne has been about longevity planning for longevity of a business of course fundamentally the longevity of these 
great products and changing the way people look at life cycles. Let's take a slightly longer term view. And obviously you don't have a crystal ball. And look, mm. if it's not a pandemic, then there's volatility of one sort or another. We see what's happening at mm. the moment, which is changing all of these dynamics around the nuances of the global economy. But that being said, you know, if we were to sit around, hopefully an impeccable table in five years with with Tom and with Will and with yourself, what would be dominating your conversation? Would it be... You guys are all detail people, right? Would it be the day-to-day challenges that are there in 2027 or 2028, whenever it might be? Or do you have a an idea about what you want to be thinking about that far down the track? In five years? Let's say five years. Selling. <laughs> so selling, selling it and selling a lot. Um, I mean, that's a tricky one. I think the ambition is to become, you know, the global go-to destination for buying and selling designer furniture that's pre-owned and vintage and I mean hopefully in five years we're much closer to that than we are now so what we would be discussing maybe selling the company (laughs) I mean at the end of the day we all want to make money let's be honest but we want to do that you know by creating something beautiful and and something that's interesting and, and something that we love so I think by that point, we'll be looking at being in a lot more territories Mm. and um, potentially diversifying or, I don't know, joining another company. Who knows? It's exciting. So maybe maybe bigger picture stuff. Yeah, exactly. Not so much day to day. Well, perhaps finally, just on that specific point, I've had a couple of conversations recently where people, some entrepreneurs have been, I think, frustrated when the business is referred to as their sort of, as their baby or as something that they're kind of nurturing. But actually... There is this process of nurture and this idea of, we were talking before Mm. we started recording about, you know, getting your kids ready in the morning, but getting your kids ready in life is kind of part of what you you do. It it is making a business that has that longevity. Mm -hmm. Do you have to have a bit of that sense of what comes next and of making something that can take its own steps, if you like, in, in the world? Is it important to look at things in that way to be a successful entrepreneur? What, thinking of longevity? Well, thinking of longevity, but also of giving something a life beyond your immediate control, potentially, down yeah. the road. That well, is yeah, important, is it? Of course, because if something isn't going to have longevity, then what's the point? I mean, you never do something, so it's only going to be around for a couple of years. You know, mm. it's got to be able to grow and take on a life of its own. But maybe even without the founders, I mean, because that's a hard thing to if, yeah. when you give so much passion to something and it's such a personal project, to think of it being successful without you I guess there's some entrepreneurs would find that really I think it I think it depends who you are and what what you're doing and why you're doing it you know if you're a fashion designer starting your own label that's an eponymous label and you started it when you're 18 I mean that's probably going to be your life's work and you become very successful you're not going to leave but you know this is a startup in, in a more traditional sense, I think we're coming at it probably with a slightly more commercial mindset. We're not, you know, the eponymous fashion designer. Do you, do you know what I mean? No, absolutely. Yeah. I, but I think it's it's funny, but it doesn't mean, of course, that I, I think, you're not as personally yeah. passionate or no, committed. No, of course as, not. As but I think going back to one of your very first questions, why did we start the business? I think we started the business because we saw a gap in the market that we felt we were equipped to fill. And we also experienced frustrations as consumers that we felt we could resolve. And that's why we started this business. Of course, there's a huge amount of passion and time that you put into a business like that. Hmm. But I would hope that, you know, in five years and 10 years, it will take on a life of its own and it will continue to grow with or without us. 
Now, we mentioned a couple of brands, and I know that it's not about you guys stamping your aesthetic tastes on, on the business or trying to pass those on to consumers, but yeah. it is about sharing your passion. Is there an item, a fantasy item, perhaps, that you would like to see uh, sort of entering the Dury House world? A particular, I don't know, is there a singular chair that is your personal favourite or, I don't know, a table or something? Is it is it a surprising item, a small thing? Is it a big thing? Something where you would just be particularly thrilled if somebody said, hey, look, I've got this thing. It's been almost untouched and it's a perfect example. Is there one? I don't know, a fantasy item perhaps? Yeah, I mean, you make it sound really beautiful and dreamy. <laughs> <laughs> um, y- yes, not maybe like a fantasy item as such, but I think, again, because we're quite a data-driven business and we see things that are very popular and we go, oh, if only someone would like call and present us with this. I think some of the original Le Corbusier chairs are, you know, especially the, the black ashes longs are very coveted and it's hard to find one in good condition. Something like that. But I think what's more exciting is actually when we get stuff that we're not expecting and we go, wow, that's amazing. We just took on an amazing, probably one of the most amazing pieces we've ever had, um, sofa by B&B Italia. And it's a huge modular sofa. It's like 15 people. It's enormous. And, you know, it's in a beautiful, deep olive velvet. And it's just a stunning piece. In perfect condition. We sold it in a week. That excites me because it's it's impressive, you know, it's amazing and beautiful. That was Daphne Vassiliadis, co-founder of Rehouse. You can learn more about the work that Daphne and her colleagues are doing. Head to rehouse.co.uk. This programme was mixed and edited by Jack Dewars. My thanks to him as ever. And of course, thanks once again to Daphne and all the Rehouse team. Listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs. <laughs>